0: We are back in Ephesians. Would you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 4, please. All right. Well, good to see everyone. Well, as I said earlier, fall is starting to trick us and tempt us as if it is in the air. And so we are back at it after a summer series called Our Church. We're back in the book of Ephesians. And so what we've done, if you took the book of Ephesians and just chopped it right down the middle, you'd find that chapters 1 to 3 are really the kind of big picture, beautiful, mysterious, or even we could say the theology portion. And then if you looked at the other side, chapters 4 to 6, you'd find that it's really more of the, okay, now what? So if the first half is theology and the second half is the kind of now what practical, the way we've talked about it in this church is we have ridden up the ski lift. We've gone and we've ridden up the mountain and we've seen all the sweeping and beautiful expanses of all that God has done for us in Christ, in Christ The whole thrust of the Ephesian letter, whether it's the first half or the second half, is life in Christ. So as we go up the ski lift, we see we're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We see that grace has made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead. We see that the that in Christ the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile or anyone has been brought down. It's divided. In God's house that he's building together, there are no walls within it, even though we've put up walls in our day. We see all of these big, beautiful, sweeping views in life in Christ. And then we see now, after this spring, we had gotten through just the first bit of chapter 4, We are now poised at the top of the mountain, ready to ski down the backside and say, that's all nice, but now how does all of that big, beautiful stuff work out in our lives and specifically in our life together as the church? We've ridden up the ski lift. Now we're headed down the backside of the mountain. So tonight our focus as we look at this unity that God has given us in Christ, we see now how to walk in that. And the way we're going to see tonight is Christ has given us two things. Okay, The first thing he's given us, each individual, a gift. You have gotten a gift. Now it may not be wrapped up as beautifully as this gift here on the pew is tonight, but it was given to you. It was given to you when you crossed over from death and into life in Christ. And we see that Christ gives each individual a gift. Then we see the second thing at the end of our passage worked out in a lot of verses in a long sentence that Paul gives us. Each church has been given a gift. And that gift is the leaders within the church. And both the individual gift that we've all received and the leaders and the things that God has given His church, both of those gifts exist for this purpose. To build up His church. To grow His church into maturity. Because as we've seen previously on our ski lift ride up the mountain, the church is God's dwelling place. The church is is Christ's body. We are alive in Christ individually, yes, but we are alive in Christ corporately as the visible witness to the world of Jesus. So tonight's focus, Christ has taken it upon himself to gift us these things so that we don't run around like a sick, unhealthy, ridiculous parody of the body that Christ has called us to. That's the so what tonight. I think about my girls. I think about a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. And they are obsessed with being big girls. Emma has big girl everything. She has to have a big girl bowl. She has to have a big girl spoon. She has to have big girl clothes. And Amy and I joke that we're not just raising one three-and-a-half-year-old in Emma. We're actually raising two three-and-a-half-year-olds because Nora has determined that even at a a year-and-a-half, as she's looking at us so earnestly and talking, if we had a decoder and translator, she would be saying, I am way too big for that. She says that when we try to put her in a high chair. She has boycotted high chairs because she wants to sit in big girl seats. She wants to do everything her big sister does. And when we're talking tonight about maturity, and we're talking about how Christ has given us these things to build up the church, there is a difference between growth and maturity. And that I want to keep in mind as we explore these gifts that God has given us. Growth, especially physically, happens whether we want it to or not it's called aging and that's tough for a lot of us unless you're big girls like Emma and Nora or like their daddy in junior high who could not wait for his voice to change because he sang soprano pretty 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 long time (laughs) but Lord willing physical growth happens but maturity has to be lived into and Christ is about maturity, that we participate with Him in the gifts He's given us. So here's what we're after in verse 7. Here's the gifts that He gives us individually to be lived into, grown into, because He wants us to be a healthy body and visible witness of the unseen Christ to the world. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. Now, it may help you because you thought, I thought grace was free. I thought grace was amazing. I thought it was given without measure. Yes. But Paul, if it would help you, has also said, grace has been given to me to be an apostle. Grace has been given to me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It would help you in verse 7, it helps me to read what he means, and that is to say, to each of us a ministry is given. The thrust here is it's been given by Christ. He's apportioned it, he's divvied it up, and he's given you a gift. Now, what do these gifts look like? Well, he's not going to give us a full laundry list here in Ephesians, but he gives us gifts in places like 1 Corinthians, and here we'll look at in Romans chapter 12. What kind of gifts might he have given to you as an individual? I love this passage in Romans 12. It's a beautiful chapter. Let's look at it, please. For just as each of us has one body with many members, okay? Keep this body metaphor on you because he's going to talk about it in Ephesians, just like he's doing in Romans. Paul loves this analogy. It's like all the stories that I tell you at dinner that you've heard a million times. We just kind of, that's what we keep going back to. This is one of Paul's greatest hits he's talking about in Romans chapter 12. Just as one body has many members, and these members do not all have the same function, what kind of body would it be if you were all ears? That would be terrible, and you'd look really hilarious. So he says in verse 5, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So we're all part of the same body, and some may be ears, but we also need the toes. And we all belong and serve one purpose, one body. So he continues, we have different gifts. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Here's what he's talking about. Now this reminds us of the Ephesian text we just looked at. According to the grace given to each of us. Or, if you'd rather, according to the ministry given to each of us. Oh, Paul must be talking to the pastors, yes? No. Paul must be talking to the apostles and all these like prophets and all these... No, no, no. Each of us, guess what that means in Greek? Each of us. If your gift then is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. We're going to talk about prophets in a bit. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. Do you get this? If it's giving, then prophesy. Wait, no. If it's giving, then what? Give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. If this is your gift, Don't squander it. Walk in it. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter 4, Christ has given each of us a gift apportioned by Christ and given to build up his church. Each church has within it many members that are a part of one body. And the idea here that we looked at in our last time we were in Ephesians about one God, one Lord, one Father, unity, unity, unity... Unity does not equal uniformity. This is one list of we need servants, we need prophets, we need encouragers, we need people to be merciful, we need you to live how you've been given and called to live. And so here's the confession because I'm gonna get on me as a pastor and Bud as a pastor because hooray, Bud has joined us again tonight. Woohoo, hallelujah. The pastors need to confess that the church needs you. We cannot do it ourselves because we're only one member and one gift. And I happen to teach. But you know what? There are others of you in this church that are gifted to teach. And so I confess to you that some of you I've talked to about this. But I confess to you because I'm still up here teaching a majority of the time. And that's something that I've been called into to live into. But many of you who are encouragers, many of you who may not find yourself on this list in Romans 12 or Ephesians 4 or elsewhere in First Corinthians, many of you who want to serve in the, your, your talents, many of you who care and serve the body, we need and we confess that we can only ask so often and so many people. So we are confessing that we fail all the time to be for 80 people the kind of enabler that maybe we ought to be. But it's also, I want to remind you, with that confession is an invitation that we need you to or shoot an email. You like that? Or give us a call and tell us, hey, you know what? You were talking about all these gifts that Christ has given us. Well, he's given me a gift. And I really feel like I, in order to honor him, and I've been praying about this, and I've been affirmed in this. So this is not some lofty dream, but this is the way you're wired that you can use in this body. We are inviting you to come and tell us. And we are going to do our best as we look at, because Christ didn't just give gifts to individuals, he gave leaders to the church to enable every member for ministry. We're asking you to also be patient and bear with us, because we're trying to, in the best way possible, get all of these pieces together. And I'll tell you this, Pastor Bud and I would bless about 99.99% of what you want to do. If you want to go and feed homeless people, how can I say no to that? If you want to help us in media, in worship, if you want these places and you're affirmed in that and you're made for that, then we want to help you in that. We want to bless it, 99.9% of it. Now, watch this. There's another tier. It's the um, staffing it, if you want to say. If you want to do Austin Street and do all this, we want to help enable more people to go and join them. And we will do that for a f- maybe a few, th- a few fewer things. But then there's this third tier. We may even fund less. So it may be a good thing to go and ask us for a bunch of money to go do a great kingdom work, but that's something where we need to pray and discern together and say, well, we may even fund even less. But I want to tell you how Bud and I just kind of peel back the curtain uh, approach all this is, please come talk to us and tell us because we can't read your mind and we can only really see some of these gifts that come to the surface. But we're confessing that we failed many times, but we're inviting you to talk to us And we're also going to tell you that we'll bless almost all of it. We'll staff a lot of it. And we may even help fund it if this is something that God's given you to work out in a body. Have I talked too much about this? Well, I'm going to keep talking about it. Because here's the thing. It's not just your gift that we need to be the mature, built-up church that Christ has called us to be. It is you that we need. Because your presence is a gift to other people. Would you give yourself fully to these people? Would you find yourself in proximity with one another? Because the church needs you, not just your gift, but you. And when you continue to do this, the outsiders, those who've not yet been brought into this body, need you. Because do you remember our Fisher of Men net analogy from the members' class? It's not one guy named Pastor Adam with a fishing pole saving souls on Saturday nights at 5 o'clock in a revival. I'm not trying to poke fun at any people or traditions. But the net is not the Lone Ranger fishing pole just for the pastor. The net in Peter and John and the 12 disciples that Jesus called because even he didn't want to do it alone. The net was one that was enormous and it had many links and many chains. And we need your encouraging and gifting and your mercy and your prophesying, your guiding, directing. We need your praying. We need every single link in the net to cast to this world and this church and bring many into life with God. And it cannot all be on my shoulders because God help us. We will not be the mature and healthy church because it shouldn't just be a mouth. As we'll see tonight, Christ gave many of us to be a whole, healthy church. To each one of us, grace or ministry has been given as Christ has apportioned it. Now, we get into a strange and mysterious bit. I'd like for you to just look, maybe your Bible in verse 9 has the beginning of a parenthesis, but in verses 8 to verse 10, there's this parenthetical statement, which Paul is going to use to back up that statement that Christ has gifted each one of us. And he quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. And the astute Bible reader will even see that the wording is a bit different. And there's many reasons for that. And if you'd like to hear about that, we can chat offline. It's really beyond our purposes because we're talking about a mature church, not textual criticism. But I will tell you, he's quoting Psalm 68. And the broader psalm, if you read it, is all about God defeating his enemies. And it's born from David in a culture... I believe David wrote that psalm. It's born of a culture, at least, in which people and kings would conquer enemies and then they would plunder their houses. They would take their livestock. It's the spoils of war, if you've ever heard that phrase. So Psalm 68 is a psalm about God defeating God's people's enemies. And so Paul is going to take that psalm and say, hey, Here's what I mean when I'm saying he's given each of us gifts. Look here at verse 8 to 10. We're going to read it all and talk about the theology and mystery that he's kind of getting at. Look at verse 8 with me. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So then he's going to comment and say, this is why I use that psalm to make a point about giving gifts. Look at verse 9. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who, watch other direction, ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Or maybe your Bible says He may fill all things. Christ ascended. But before He ascended, He descended. I want you to make note, if you're taking notes, of 1 Peter 3. Peter and Paul reference this descent the only two times in the New Testament. How many of you remember the creed we recited each week this summer and that tricky little phrase that say he was crucified, died and was buried. And we said and descended to the dead. The Apostles Creed would say in many churches he descended into hell. Now, what is going on here is they're taking these two references in Ephesians 4, right here that we're looking at, and also places like 1 Peter 3, and maybe even you can make a reference to Acts when Peter's referencing Psalm 16 about letting the soul see the underworld. But what's going on is before Christ ascended, he descended and he descended after he was crucified. When Jesus was crucified, he was buried and put into the ground. And we use these two New Testament that are very mysterious, but we use them along with places like Colossians 2 that says He made an open shame of all the principalities and powers and dark forces, and He led them in a parade to their shame because at the cross, watch, He defeated sin and death and Satan and all of the angels that oppose God in His plan. And so is the sense in which at the crucifixion and in the descent, in the burial, Christ goes to the lower earthly regions. Stay with me. In the lower earthly regions, you may equate that with Sheol in the Old Testament. Have you heard that word Sheol in the Psalms? This is the place that they thought spatially, not literally, but if you were to put a map in it, if God was enthroned on high up in the heavens and we were here in the earth, under the earth is this place that was far from God's presence, far from God's activity. And it was a place of shadows and it was a place of darkness. And there's this sense in which a lot of the activity, you may hear like the prince of powers in the air, but there's a sense in which in the shadows grave is all of these forces that are opposed to God and in the descent after the crucifixion Jesus goes down to do work and conquer them in some mysterious way and so before he ascends he descends and he has defeated the chains he's defeated the powers of sin death and Satan and this is great news for people in Asia Minor in the Ephesus region because look Many of their gods, one of their gods, was even said to have the keys to death and Hades. In Revelation 1, there is a letter sent to the churches in Ephesus. And it says, Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. This is great news to the Ephesian Christians, not just because he gave you gifts, but because he is the one that holds the keys of death and Hades. Not all the competing religious gods that are going to come, and as we're going to see later in the text, are drawing the church away. Asking them to consult and consort with the dead. Asking them to be afraid of all the dark demonic powers. If Christ ascended, watch, it's because when he descended, he defeated the powers of sin and death and Satan. And he wrestled the keys away from the enemy, away from darkness. And we need not fear the enemy and his devices. And he will come back at the end of this letter and say, by the way, even though they may still be around, they need not hurt you because you can put on the armor of God, the sword of truth, the belt of righteousness and all these things to do work. Why? Because you're in Christ. And in Christ you need not fear death. You need not fear the one who can hurt your body. He will not take your soul. He will not even take your body. Because Jesus will raise it from the dead and he will lead one day all the forces of darkness and evil. They will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and every knee shall bow every tongue will confess in Philippians 2 not just with all the saints and sinners but even those watch under the earth this place that has been making war on God and His kingdom Christ will fill all in all there is not one stretch of the universe the cosmos that you can see or not see in which Christ says I am Lord Period. So don't fear. Can Satan and his angels mess with you and affect you? Yes. I don't believe that Satan is behind every rock and we should be afraid of him. And the reason why we sin is because the devil made me do it. But we need not be so silly that this is not some personal, spiritual, and powerful forces opposed to God and his kingdom keeping us enslaved. I see it in addiction. I see it in mental illness. I see these forces that are still running amok in this world. And even though they're still running amok, we need to remember the victory over sin and death and Satan. And trust that it's been completed in principle. And that now in Christ we need not fear them taking our all. And one day Christ will fill all and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're just living in between. So Christ ascended because he descended. He took all these captives in the spoils of war, so to speak. And so when he ascends to the throne, the right hand of the father, just like some ancient king, he's going to divvy out the spoils of war. And what Jesus has given us, as Paul says so many times elsewhere, specifically in this letter in chapter one, he's given us the spirit, the seal, and he's given us each grace. So that's a long way around to say, guess what, y'all? You got a spiritual gift. So go Google a spiritual gift assessment and you can find out what it is. I'm not trying to make light of it. But that's what I mean. This is a very mysterious and strange psalm. But the point is this Christ has given us freely, not just a gift, but Himself. And He's even made us His very body. So He wants us to mature, He wants us to be filled with His presence. It is good that Jesus ascended because it'd be really difficult to live in light of the power of a five foot eight. Arminian, Jewish person. I said Arminian. I meant like a Mediterranean person. Why did I say Arminian? If Jesus was still physically with us, He may be a great example. But because He's raised and ascended, He can fill us and be with us. He can gift us. And He also gives people the church. So let's look at this second section after that parenthetical statement. He's given individuals gifts. Now He's going to give... The church gifts. You ready for it? Y'all with me? Yes? Rock and roll. Look at verse 11 with me. So Christ himself gave. Now, back to my point about this giving business. Who did Christ give? Well, he lists off the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. They're very closely linked together. And why did he give them? Look at verse 12. To equip his people for works of service. God help you, Providence Community Church. You're looking at the gifts. We are here to help and equip and encourage. But there are more people listed here, and I'd just like to briefly look at these other people who've been called and given to the church to help build it up into maturity. And it takes all. So look at the apostles. That's a word for the sent ones, the envoys, witnesses, who have seen the risen Jesus and are establishing the church. So they're the gifted ones. They're called and lived out to be apostles. Paul says, I was given grace to be an apostle, and they build up the church. Now, now we don't have many witnesses to the risen Jesus today, do we? But we have people, I think, still that function apostolically. There are people like Peter, Paul, John or Peter, Paul, and Mary, that go around and they bless many churches, yes? There's still this sense that they're building up and establishing the church. The second persons he mentions here are prophets. They're gifted to speak through the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord to help guide and direct the church. This was so crucial in the early church, especially for Ephesians, because guess what? They did not have the New Testament. So thus saith the Lord, let's do this. He's calling us on to this. And then the people would listen and say, thank you, member of this body. Now, because we've been gifted with the Holy Spirit, we shall discern what you have said. And we shall run it through the filter of who Jesus is and what he's taught us through the apostles. And we're going to move forward with it. Would you make note of 1 Corinthians fourteen three? There, he lists what these prophets do, and they do it in order to build up the church. Another group that built up the church are the evangelists. Don't think of the reverends with prayer cloths and a sweaty big tent revival, but do think of people who are gifted to announce the good news of Jesus to the world. A good phrase here is gospelers. They go out because that word evangelist is uh, from a root word that was gospel. So they go out in gospel and they announce that Jesus is king and you're invited to submit to him. There are people who are just wired this way. Do you know these kind of people? The pastor of the church that I grew up in would be the guy that would talk about Jesus from floor four. And down the elevator to floor one, you would have heard that God loves you. He has a plan for your life. And if you were to die, where would you be? Would you be with him? And we can pray about it in the lobby because now it's time to go. (laughs) This man was an evangelist. This man was an evangelist, the greatest evangelist I've ever seen and known. There's one mention of an evangelist in Acts, and that's in chapter 21 with Philip. So then it's not just those, it's also the pastors. These are gifted to care for and guide the local church. There's really not a whole lot of function explained in the New Testament, but we do see in their language of what they're called, the shepherds, the overseers, the elders, and especially how Paul talks to the Ephesian elders that we looked at way long ago in our intro in Acts 20. He talks about how they care for the church and keep them free of false teachers. So the pastors would be very keen in this next section we're about to look at to keep the church careful and keep the church away from these false people that would draw them away. The pastors cared for and shepherded the flock. And then they're very closely related to teachers. And so the pastor's teachers, there's a lot of overlap with many of these. But he's given us teachers to contend for truth in the face of competing religious messages. Like I said earlier about the cult of Diana and Artemis and Ephesians. There's all these other cults and there's all these people in the marketplace asking if you want your fortune read. They're asking for all of this other stuff. Like, is that still happening today? Are there still competing philosophies and religions in this world? That's why we do this every week. It's not to shore up your beliefs, but it's to remind you that Jesus is who he says he is. And there are teachers in this church, there are teachers in the church universal that are gifted to say, wait, 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 does it look like Jesus? Does it sound like Jesus? Does it help us live in light and follow Jesus? If I could whittle down the teachers, if I could whittle down what I try to do, is to try to say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Okay? These are these people I just thought you might appreciate we talking about this list because when are we ever going to talk about this again? Not in our Ephesians series, so it's good to look at this now. This is a list of equippers. Look with me again at verse 12. Why do they exist? Because it's a nice career choice where you can make lots of money. Well, it depends if you're in a certain kind of church that will buy you uh, all sorts of things and you can be on TV and ask for planes and stuff. But it's not just a career choice. These apostles and prophets are called and lived into and they're given to the church to equip them. But it's not all on them because the people are equipped to what? Works of service to serve. And it's for all of us pulling together as members of one body so that the body of Christ may be built up. So what does it look like when we're built up? The end game, the maturation process that takes place when we work and serve and are equipped together is that we will all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and what? become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We were told that Christ fills all. He's gifted all. He's gifted the church. And this language here is when we are all in Christ, serving one another, serving in the name of Jesus to others, it's as if we stand up and some of the language here and maybe in your Bible says we're built up into the perfect man. And that's a strange way of saying, basically, you're standing up into all the fullness that God has called you to be. Let me tell you that my heart's desire is that our church would be all that God has called us to be. Let me tell you that the desire of your pastors and leaders and so many of us in this church is when we see Jesus face to face, we'll be like the NBA players who just said after the I left it all on the court. That we would leave nothing, that we would be all that God has called us to be. And that's something that takes work. It doesn't happen. Maturity is worked out as we strive to maintain our unity. Because look back if you've got your Bible or phone, look back at the beginning of chapter 4. We're told that we have all this one faith, one all this. And in verse 3 of chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Unity is not something we attain. Unity is something we maintain. So when we're standing up and maturing, we look like a church that is united in the faith and knowledge of who Jesus is. Now, you and I may have a different view of some of the extracurricular matters of our faith. Guess what? I have a different view than my Catholic family. But you know what we agree on? Three words. Jesus is Lord. And I think at the end of the day, when we see Jesus face to face, when we stand before Him, We can line everybody up, and the Methodist and the Baptist and the Pentecostal and the Catholic. They can all sit down, and if Jesus were to ask each one of them, why should you come into the kingdom that has been prepared in advance before the foundation of the world for you, my people? And I think each one down the list, regardless of their domination, if they say, you are Lord and you're all I've got. I tried. I failed. I failed. But I said, you know what? Your grace is enough. And there is a moment in my life when I cross from death to life. And even though sometimes it looked like I went back to death. You're all I had. You're it. I didn't go and look here and look there. I may have failed you, but that's it. I think regardless of what your church membership says or a member covenant says, if you can say that, I think you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come. That's where we are crazy enough to say, you know what? Even though we've got these Anabaptist core convictions that help us do the now what of our way of being together. If you don't withhold those core convictions, that's all right. I don't know why you'd want to be in this church because we're going to look and think and smell and speak this way. But it's okay. Come to the table. Because if you can say Jesus is Lord, you're with it. So we are so content to be fixed on who the Son of God is and that knowledge and be united in He and His gospel. That this way, look at verses 14 as we come to a close. If we get here... We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. I imagine, I mean, this is a terrible analogy. Think about a baby in the waves. This is dreadful. But he's trying to say, you're going to be helpless. And I think of so many people in this... in this world who are looking and seeking. And God help them if they look on that TV and somebody's saying that you can be right with Jesus when you send this money in, when you put this seed money in, and you can get 50-fold back. Don't pay your bills. Don't go and follow Jesus. Just send me the money and I will send you this and you'll just keep on going. I think of all the frail people who happen to wander in or pick up that book And they may have had an inkling of Jesus, and just like the seed that's scattered, many times this enemy who is still prevalent will trick them, dissuade them. And even, God help us, there are people that can be blown, blow these infants. Look what Paul says, here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This is why we need to be so rooted on who Jesus is and his gospel. And this is why God help us. He's given the church leaders, leaders in the broader church, leaders in this church to help properly give us the rudder and the guidance as we submit to you and, and we do this together. So, what's the antidote to this kind of being blown here and there? What's the alternative? How do we get built up? How do we grow into maturity? Let's look at verse 15 as we continue to draw it back to a close. Instead, instead basically of believing all the lies, speaking truth in love, we will grow. To become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head. So, if we're not to be believing all these deceitful and cunning practices in people, What do we do? We remind each other of the truth. Of who Jesus is. When you are not thinking rightly about yourself. Church. You. Person. Go to your brother and sister and speak the truth in love. And say you're not who you say you are. You're not who you think you are. You are in Christ. Beloved daughter. Beloved son. Gifted. Called. Healed welcomed, embraced. You're no longer a slave to fear, to sin, to death, to Satan, because Christ ascended. He defeated those powers. You're His. Church, you, person, when someone in your midst has believed the lie and is following down the road of destruction and sin, speak truth in love. Lead them like the loving shepherd Back to the right path. It is so inconsistent. To speak on behalf of the God of love. Without love. This church. May it never be guilty of speaking. About the God of love. And for the God of love. Without love. Bring and contend the brother and sister. Back into repentance and grace. Because the scriptures say. In his kindness. He leads us to repentance. Not in bullying. Church, you, person, me, for all the above. Would you make a vow in your marriage and in your relationship with these people to speak the truth in love? Would you make a vow to shut your mouth and stop gossiping? Because you know what tears down churches? Gossip. You know it's talked about so much in that Corinthian church that was such a mess? Gossip. You know what does not build up people, whether they hear it or not? Gossip. You know what's not truth many times? Gossip. And if it is truth, to speak the truth in love is to go to a brother or sister like Jesus says in Matthew and say, hey, we need to talk about this. Speaking truth in love is going to the person because you love them and you are in Christ and they are in Christ and we are a part of His body that is supposed to be mature, not immature. Because you know it's immature, no offense, but I remember middle schoolers at the locker, that is immaturity. But we're called to be a church that stands up to the full measure of who we've called to be in Christ. Would we make a vow to speak truth in love to one another? To correct those wrong ways of thinking, those wrong ways of acting, and the wrong way of tearing down one another. But God doesn't do it all for us. (coughs) We participate with Him. We're called to speak the truth in love, and then we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, the head that fills us and fuels us, just like a brain that is Christ Who fills all in all. Now, here's where we participate with Him, our head. Look at verse 16. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, every ligament doing work, every ligament serving, loving, encouraging, giving, teaching, grows and builds itself up in love. We have inherited a system where we say, well, that's Christ in me. Oh boy, I didn't do a good thing. And we've so lost the beautiful balance of how God works in our lives. God saves you when you are dead. There's nothing you could do there. But as someone who's been saved and is alive, He is inviting you always to choose life. He's inviting you always to place yourself before Him and work out this salvation because God does not steamroll you into a saint. God invites you and calls you to be formed more and more into the image of Christ in the long obedience. And yes, I'm here to tell you, it takes work to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But you don't do it in your own strength. Hear me. You don't do it in your own strength but you place yourself like the clay on the wheel and the work is placing yourself and letting Him do the work. So these gifts that I've talked about, that you've been given, would you surrender them to Him and His body and see that He multiplies it beyond all the ways you could imagine? You don't know what a blessing you are to someone else in this church until you talk to them and give that gift and walk in it And you find other ligaments on the other leg. And you see that you can encourage them to walk together. And we can build up ourselves, church, into Christ our head who fills and fuels us. To be that mature, truthful, healthy expression and witness of Him in the world. So this is where we wind up. This is the very last thing. How do we know if we're maturing into the church God wants us to be? Are we united, church, in what we believe about Jesus in the gospel? Look at verse 13. That's what unity in the faith and knowledge is becoming mature. Do we speak to one another like Jesus? Because here's the thing. It's not just what you say, church. It's not just what would Jesus do. It's how would Jesus do it. I find myself getting very frustrated sometimes. And before I meet with people or before I'm, I'm talking to my wife, I have to sit down and chill out and separate and say, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't control and help me, give me strength in this moment, not be a total doofus. Help me relate to others like you and not just go scorched earth because I'm mad about something. Please guard my words, guard my tongue. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. Number three, are we supporting one another? That's in verse 16 there too. We grow and support and build itself up as each part does its work, which leads us to the fourth bit. Are you using your gift? Are you doing work? And if you're not, see earlier where I said, please talk to me, please talk to Bud and I. We will, we will try our best to equip this church. And finally, are you building in love? Are you seeing each person as someone who's in Christ? When you look at these sad sack beautiful people, no offense to you, when you look around this room like we're going to do in just a moment, do you see Jesus in them? Do you see the image of God cultivating and forming them? into the people, mature people that God's called them to be. If we can say yes, or we're trying, I think we're growing into the mature uh, church in Christ that God wants us to be. Because our goal is not just to grow in number, because physical growth just happens sometimes, yes? But our goal is to mature into the fully formed, healthy body of Christ with everyone together as we follow Jesus together. So that's where we begin as we descend the mountain, working out the now what to life in Christ. And every step on our journey until Advent will be one that is taken, Lord willing, together. So let's pray. And we'll invite you to the table. Forgive me for the long sermon tonight. Father, we're so grateful that you've given us Jesus and you've given us a church. We ask that You would grow us and we would help build into the people that You have called us to be. In Jesus' name, Amen.